welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. I've always found the history of Eastern Europe difficult to come to grips with compared to the Western side of the continent. The history and culture of Spain, France, or Italy seem to fall within clearly defined boundaries, but Eastern Europe is different. Its borders blend and shift together, and even the cuisine bears striking similarities between countries. The more I've traveled in Europe, the more my interest has shifted east, to a region that looks increasingly complex the deeper you delve into it. I reached out to Jacob Mikanowski to help us understand its empires, faiths, stories, and nations. Jacob is the author of Goodbye Eastern Europe, an intimate history of a divided land, a new book that approaches the region thematically and that does a really nice job of capturing the spirit of place. We spoke about frontier societies, plagues of vampires, and the gift of seeing comedy amidst tragedy. Before we jump in, I'd like to take a second to say that I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. The topics I feature on Personal Landscapes tend to follow my own curiosity. A trip I'm preparing for just returned from, the direction of my reading, and of course, my original goal of doing episodes on those great older writers whose work I read when I set out to write about travel. Those episodes take me a little longer to pull together, given how many books I end up reading and rereading to prepare for them. If there's a writer or book you'd like to see featured, please drop me a line through my website. I'm always happy to hear from you. On that note, thank you for listening, for sharing personal landscapes with others, and for those kind donations that help me cover the costs of the show, all of which come out of my pocket. I do this stuff in my free time outside my normal work, so I really appreciate your support. But that's enough of my babbling. Let's hear what Jacob Mikanowski has to tell us. So you've said in the book that there's no such thing as Eastern Europe. I think that would be a good place to start. Like, Why did you decide to write a, a book about a place that doesn't exist? That's a good question. Um, I definitely grew up believing in Eastern Europe and going to Eastern Europe and traveling to Eastern Europe and, and thinking of it as, as Eastern Europe. My, uh, I grew up in kind of middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, but I was raised in a Polish-speaking uh, household. So I, I, my first language is Polish. My, we'll get, can get into that later, but I was going back from there to Poland and, you know, kind of the last days of the Cold War, last days of socialism. And it was... And into the 90s, you were just traveling across, not across time zones, but across kind of historical zones. You would you'd get off and, and, sh- and show up an airport, which is very different than it is now, if anyone knows it. Uh, you just landed on the tarmac, and everything smelled different, differently. Everything felt differently. It was a different world. First, the world of socialism, then this kind of very uh, chaotic world of transition. And Eastern Europe was like a tangible living thing. And I was always fascinated by it. I thought Poland, I thought Warsaw, which is not most people's favorite city, was just, just the most interesting place. Part of that was coming from the country, coming from, you know, just, a, just the most boring modern suburbia without even a city, really. And coming to this really kind of tragic city that still had bullet hole, like my, my grandfather's uh, apartment building still had bullet holes from World War II. They're still right there. Um, by the entrance to the sense of history. And then I went to college, studied uh, European history with a focus on Eastern Europe, 
went to grad school, also studied Eastern Europe with a focus on history. And the further I went, the further it's the, the aughts and the, the teens, that idea of Eastern Europe started to kind of evaporate, started to kind of disappear. People's interest started to wane. There was, there was a kind of, the 90s were great for Eastern Europe. People were really interested. People were interested in the transition. The War of the Balkans, although tragic, did kind of draw people's interest to the region. And then it, as things got better, as uh, the EU expanded, as the economies got better, paradoxically, people's interest disappeared and the distinctiveness started to fade. And um, so when I was actually, I, this book came out of an essay called Goodbye Eastern Europe. And I was writing it, I was kind of in a doldrum in my doctoral program. I'm like, there, people have stopped hiring in Eastern Europe. People aren't reading Eastern European fiction. This doesn't seem to excite people's interest. And I was like, I'm gonna, there's so much that's interesting about it. There's so much interesting history. There's so much interesting literature. There's so much fascinating country, countryside, language. I'm going to kind of gather a, a couple of my favorite little stories, put it together in some kind of essay, and actually kind of personally say goodbye to Eastern Europe. And then as I wrote that, I'm like, well, this is also, I'm saying goodbye, and, and the world is kind of saying goodbye. It's that thing a lot of us grew up with from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s of there being another Europe. There used to be a, a series of literature that Philip Roth put together, very popular in the 70s and 80s, popularized a lot of the great Czech, Polish, Hungarian novels called The Other Europe, that there was an other Europe. That seemed to fade. And so that's the, the genesis of that idea, that it doesn't, you know, the physical reality is there, but the idea is vanishing. And then honestly, as, as the book was, as I was finishing, I was actually all pretty much done, the war in Ukraine started, and now both the sense of threat has returned and the sense of peril that, you know, that, that this is turning into two separate things. There's this kind of bucolic, bucolic might be too strong, but tamed European Union part of Eastern Europe. And then this politically frozen fragment that is just dominated by conflict. It's kind of Ukraine, Kosovo, and that you've had this complete split. So that's where the, the genesis of that kind of paradoxical title comes from. It's almost, a Cold War world that doesn't exist anymore. Like you said, the, the phrase is an outsider's convenience, uh, a catch-all used to conceal a nest of stereotypes. Anytime I've I've referred to the region as Eastern Europe to friends who come from some of these countries, they get quite offended at it. The, the concept of Middle Europa seems to be more appealing to them. So is it because this sort of summed up a lot of Cold War stereotypes, the term Eastern Europe? I think so. Um, it's interesting. Eastern Europe, and again, kind of have to wade into this uh, treacherous terminology. Some people find it offensive, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of Cold War stereotype. There's a lot of post Cold War stereotype. Uh, some of that is from it's kind of the Balkans specific. Sometimes it's Serbia specific. Sometimes it's Albania specific. Sometimes it is just the whole. It's kind of dismissive of the whole region. I've had the opposite also. I've had people tell me, "Oh, absolutely." Once I'm in England. Once I'm in America. I'm Eastern European. People can't really tell the difference. So we get kind of, everyone gets kind of funneled into that same uh, box, funneled into that same jar. And so you absolutely find out that, yeah, you are Eastern European. There's also the problem that there isn't a great counter term in, in Poland, where I'm most familiar, I'm most familiar with people do like Central Europe. Um, and that's true in Hungary, that's true in uh, former Czechoslovakia, both parts, for a lot of the region, and then Middle Europa. Middle Europa is very German coded. So like American academia, you know, that word comes from German 
professor of economics who's kind of like, what's what's there's Germany and then there's the greater German economic sphere. And, and the, the greater German economic sphere, the place where Germany can sell its goods and buy its raw materials, is this bigger middle Europa. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I, I, I associate that with like um, Joseph Roth and uh, Stefan Zweig and that kind of cultural milieu of the Austro-Hungarian Empire days, that sort of world that vanished with um, the First World War. I didn't. It didn't uh, occur to me that this was a German kind of projection on the region. That's interesting. Well, that act, that actual ice world middle Europe, and that it has been because you have that that rich and that kind of is colloquially that kind of post Habsburg world. Although it's, it's like the Habsburg German influenced lands, Zweig and Roth are both German language writers. Although Roth is from. Um, way out in, in what's Ukraine now. It used to be the, the very border of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's a big smuggling town called Brody. Brought it in Ukraine. And so but central, I mean, Pol- like Poles like the idea that Poland is the center of Europe. But central Europe kind of extends. There's another history of central Europe coming out this summer. And it's very much like you also have to talk about the Holy Roman Empire. You also have to talk about Austria. It becomes the center of gravity moves through that German-speaking world. And I'm kind of on the other side. I'm like, everyone but German. Like, we start east of Germany. We start east of the, the German cultural dominance. It's everything that's kind of on the other side of that. I guess this is part of the problem and coming to grips with that region. It's the history is so uh, convoluted. Like, the history and culture of Spain or France or Italy seem to fall within clearly defined boundaries. Like, we know what French or Italian food is with all its regional variations. We have a sense of French and Italian um, film or literature, but Eastern Europe feels different. Like the borders blend and shift together. And even the cuisine bears striking similarities. Like within everyone seems to have a variation on goulash or cold soups or cabbage rolls kind of thing. Uh, But as a traveler, I've become more and more interested in Eastern Europe because it's so different from the countries further West. You say part of this confusion arises because um, the region was still in flux long after Western Europe was, had settled into something resembling what we know today. Yeah, I think something I try to do in my book is is to kind of go beyond the the Cold War definitions of Eastern Europe and and argue that there is there's kind of unity and diversity that the defining one of the defining characteristics of Eastern Europe is its enormous internal diversity and that very diversity gives it a kind of cohesion from from Estonia to the north to Albania and the south at that. And the processes that created it. So I, I'm not the only one who does this, but uh, I kind of take it back to the Middle Ages and that the trajectories of West and East kind of diverge. The West, starting maybe the, the 13th or 14th century, starts getting more and more homogenous. There are these strong medieval kingdoms in, in France, England, and Spain that start to really enforce kind of a, a single rule on their territory and start homogenizing the people. So in uh, in England, it you know, pointed the, the expulsion of the Jews and then the French expulsion of the Jews to get rounded up in one week. And then around 1300, everyone was kicked out. And then Spain, expulsion of their Jews, the conversion of their Jews, and then the expulsion of the Moriscos. So you're getting rid of that Jewish element, you're getting rid of the Muslim element, and you're solidifying boundaries. Places that were much more fluid are getting you know, boundaries surrounded by castles, you're getting more homogenous linguistic territory, religious territory, and you're getting rid of the minorities. And in the East, it's kind of the reverse. Um, it's much less settled. There's much less urban development. 
there's much less economic development. There's much more of the, the threat from the kind of the waves crashing in from Eurasia. You still have the, the Patsanaks, the Kumans, and the Mongols, and the Tartars that, that struggle with the nomads coming from the East. You actually need people guarding against them. Sometimes you recruit them. And so the rulers, sometimes the royal rulers, sometimes individual rich magnates or dukes who want to build a village or build a mine or build a town, they're recruiting people. They're recruiting Germans. They're inviting Jews. They're using pagan troops. They're allowing Muslims to settle in exchange for military service. And so things are actually getting more diverse. They're getting more complicated. And so by the 18th, 19th, 20th century, into the 20th century, you have this very layered, very complicated social fabric where you can go from village to from the countryside to the village square to the town square you hear three different languages three different churches or um so churches temples religious institutions you have this incredibly variegated kind of i think a, a german scholar called a dappled character that that kind of defines i think kind of the social matrix of what is what eastern europe is yeah, I was surprised how long some of this um, turmoil went on. Like you said, that the Tartars were still conducting slave raids in the territory around Lviv and Mozart's day. So only Catherine the Great was able to put a stop to it finally. So this this is uh, very recent, this, this sort of uh, turmoil that we kind of think of as being located in the Middle Ages, maybe. Yeah, I think actually I was, I was outside Lviv in a little town called Comarno, and I saw the, it's like a pillar commemorating the last Tartar raid in 1745 and in Romania, they went into 1717, 1720. These independent uh, canon, I'm not saying that right, but, but a territory ruled by Khan in the Crimea. And their big industry was, was raiding and slaving. And they were still at it until they were broken in, I think, 1775. So, you know, you're, you're getting into, you know, the time of the French and American revolutions. You still have that kind of fear of, of the raiders of the border crossers. And you have Tartars still living in Poland, Belarus, and, and Lithuania. Um, this, this minority, this Muslim minority that was settled there by the Polish-Lithuanian kings to work as soldiers, to work as defense agents. And they have their own mosques, these pretty incredible world, far eastern Poland, and, and much harder to visit Belarus and, and southern Lithuania. Wooden mosques, like the most northernmost, that date back to the 17th, 18th century. And a minority that's still, that's very small now, but still there, still had their Polish, Polish imams, um, Polish Tartar imams preaching. So that kind of emissaries from a different world. The other thing that surprised me about that aspect of it too was um, you said that multiple areas were still in the process of being settled in the 18th and 19th century. So it's very much a frontier society. People still trying to homestead or settle in these areas. Like I'd expect that from uh, Canada, but not from Europe in this time period. And that's, that's another feature of, of borderlands of these, these are areas that were so depleted by warfare that you had to almost start them from scratch. Uh, the Banat, the kind of the, uh, if you've been to Serbia, um, the Northern parts of it, so like around with Vodina and. Uh, yeah, that's exactly where I went. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Into Romania. Yeah. That, that, that flat lands, there was, there was so much warfare there. There was the pe only people left were, were sh kind of random shepherds. And so when um, the Austro-Hungarians acquired it, they basically started from scratch. They started 
literally rafting in Germans uh, down the Danube. They let Spaniards settle who had a who had falling out with the Spanish king. They let French people settle, and then of course you have this influx from everywhere around: so Serbs, Ruthenians, Bulgarians, sometimes Greeks. Same kind of process in southern Ukraine. Same thing in um, Bukovina, which is now kind of split between Ukraine and Romania. That you were kind of like the frontier America. You were building towns and cities from scratch. And the people who were coming there were, were immigrants, local immigrants, and immigrants from other parts of Europe. Sometimes pretty distant. Lots of Swabians, lots, lots of people from like German Catholics, making a pretty long, pretty arduous voyage to get there. You've got a really good quote in the book here. It's, this is from quite a bit later, but it gives a sense of that ethnic diversity and that kind of confusion. You give the example of a woman called Eleanor who married a Hungarian nobleman in 1937. And the crumbling castle she lived in, whose estate she managed, was was in Czechoslovakia, but it had originally belonged to Hungary. After the First World War, you say, it was briefly occupied by Romania before falling under Czechoslovak control, and it's now in Ukraine. So Czech power in the district was represented by a single morose Moravian grocer and a local official who seems to have been a spy. Official business was conducted not in Czech, but in German. Aside from a few Romanians, most of the farm workers on Eleanor's estates were Ruthenians, as were most of the peasants in the district. Mm -hmm. It's just a massive jumble of people. Actually, let's go around Vinohradiv. It's, uh, it's that little, little kind of thumbprint of Ukraine that's over the, over the Carpathian Mountains. It's hard, hard to, well, now it's a, a big place because people are coming. That's the main way to get in and out of Ukraine via Hungary. But a very, very contested region that has a majority Ukrainian population but the landowners have always been Hungarian. So it's, it's what it's, there are lots of examples of that. Of and in fact, it's maybe dominant where the landowners belong to one culture, one world, one language, one religion. The people who work the land, another, and then the intermediaries, the people who manage the trade, to a third group, and then out there, um, it's also a big, so big area of Roma settlement. To this day, actually, there's Romas kind of stranded in that area. Who are Hungarian-speaking Romas who don't have much to do with the Roma-speaking or Ukrainian Roma-speaking Roma of the rest of Ukraine. So it's got this still traces of that former um, complexity, although much diminished now. So how much of that has to do with just this sort of frontier settlements, and how much to do with uh, the way borders have shifted and changed in those regions? I mean, I'm thinking of how many times a city like Lviv changed hands mm -hmm. and changed countries. How much the um, the complexity or the kind of simplification? Yeah, that that's sort of diversity of these. The average lifetime, how many times would someone end up changing allegiances or governments living in these areas? Semi, I don't call them the good old days, but the, the days of you know the nineteenth century, you could you could live your whole life uh, to a very old age under one ruler. If you were born around same time as Franz Joseph, you could you could grow up with him and die with him and, and you'd be almost 70 years old and you'd never have known another, not just another government, but another ruler. That world of beginning of the 19th century, there's this long peace exactly, but pretty close to peace and, and the borders are pretty settled. And if you're in the Russian empire or the Austro, especially the Austro-Hungarian empire, things are very stable from the point of view who's at the very top. And then the 20th century, there are areas like the area you talked about, um, this area on the 
edge of Slovakia, on the edge of Hungary, on the edge of Ukraine, that changed changed national allegiance six, five times, six times, three times, um, four times, almost any, almost everywhere, changed several times over the 20th century. My grandparent, my my oldest grandfather was born under the Tsar, the last Tsar. So he he would have seen four changes of power, I think, just in Warsaw. So that so you have a complete kind of inversion from from this very stable 19th century, incredibly disruptive 20th century. So in a situation like that, where would people's allegiances generally lie? Because the country's changed so often, would it be to the district, to the town, to the family, to to their linguistic group or ethnic group, religion? That's a great. That's a great, great Eastern European question. That's that's much harder to answer than it is for you know for a, a France um, or a Spain, where oh, there was some process getting getting people from the from the outskirts to kind of believe your French or your Spanish. Pretty settled. That's that's something that changes over time. I, the answer in the past would be your allegiance would be to your class, really, um, or your religion, and and usually those those were the same in a way. They they both. If you were one kind of Christian, that meant you were a peasant. If you were another kind of denomination, it meant you were noble. You your allegiance would be to your estate. This is into the nineteenth centuries. So, if you're Hungarian speaking nobleman in in what's now romania or what's now ukraine you belong to that nation the nation is the world of hungarian noblemen who have certain rights that their romanian peasants belong to another church do not have and so if you ask someone what are you they would tell you i'm christian they might mean orthodox christian and they explain this this church or jews who had their own legal prohibitions they couldn't own land they couldn't settle in certain places they were Jews and their allegiance is to that communal, they had their own kind of communal government. So that communal institution, that class institution, that religious identity were what mattered. And as you go through the 19th and 20th century, that shifts to some combination of nation, nationalism, defined usually by language, especially for the people who are the majority in a certain area. And then also for some people, it means ideology. It means, especially if you're uncomfortable with that, that overarching name. Nation, if you're like in say Eastern Poland, it's like this is Poland now, but you're you're Belarusian, you're Ukrainian. A lot of people are drawn to movements that are above nation, that are communist or socialist or labor union or um, or fascism. Sometimes something that will will unify people on a bigger world or or supra ethnic level, uh, and that was the the most important you know, defining allegiance against nation. So it gets very, I and mean, that's that's how you get some very complicated, very internal conflicts across the 20th century. People are pitted against each other within their communities, within their towns, within their regions. That kind of strong regional identity isn't as common as it is, say, in Italy, you know, where people are like very proud and Tuscan. There are incredibly interesting regions in Eastern Europe, but usually it splits into into other pools, how people, people identify Really interesting how this plays out on a small scale too. You've had a you've got a description of this in the book about how people tend to romanticize this multiplicity of languages and faiths and cultures as this sort of melt, but melting pots where they all blend together was rare. You say uh, much more common was the situation that prevailed in Chernobyl, uh, where sports were organized along strictly strictly ethnic lines. 
the Germans, Ukrainians, Romanians, and Poles all had their own teams. The Jews had two, one Zionist and one not. People don't even cooperate on, on, on the small level of sports teams. These allegiances seem to trickle down to, to various aspects of their lives and even to the, to the quarters of the cities that they lived in and the professions and social classes they were associated with. Yeah, that's the that's the kind of the character of that of the Eastern European past that's, that's kind of hard to grasp. It's hard for me to grasp at first. I and mean, you go to these, but when you go to small towns in, in Slovakia, a small town called Kesmarok, and you go to like the, the city museum. I really like these like little urban museums that you know it's just the museum of the town, and uh, often they'll have all this stuff from before World War One, all the sports associations. So you can see, like in Chernobyl, you'll see the the Jewish soccer, the Jewish football club. The other Jewish football club that didn't have the same politics, the three German ones that each have a different kind of allegiance to, you know, like the Austrian Germans or the German Germans and the Germans who are okay living in in Hungary, which is where Slovakia was. Uh, and you see this kind of, we don't have great metaphors for it. I think there's a pillarization or, or kind of separate columns side by side, that kind of society where there is interaction there are areas where people cross over but there's a lot of vertical segregation um people have everyone's got their team their club their singing club um if you go to sarajevo there are these great little urban museums and you see all the you know everyone had their choir there was the bosnian muslim choir which was also a bicycle club there was the serbian choir there was the Ladino speaking, the, Jer the Sephardic Jews had their choir, and then the Ashkenazi Jews had their choir, and they would all kind of compete, and everyone had their civic organizations, and you had, so not, not melting, but coexisting, um, and often competing, and often, like, like in Chernovitz, everyone had their soccer club, and it got really, really nasty in the 20s, there was like, complicated feuds between the the Germans and the Jews, but then the Poles and the Romanians, everyone was jockeying and had to play in the same tournament and sabotage each other and there were giant riots. And so it's not, not the easy coexistence, not the fluid coexistence we want to imagine, but somehow it, it also wasn't, it wasn't this, this horrible violence that spills out in World War II. It was, it managed somehow, I think they call it like a, a, a at the end, a ramshackle utopia. And, and utopias only kind of relative to what happens afterwards, but but you get that ramp, you know, it just manages to soldier, soldier along. You manage to get year after year, there's friction, there's maybe a little rioting, but you do manage somehow to, to coexist. How permeable were these groups? Like, did people marry across groups or did they generally stick to their own? God, that's complicated. They, and I'm, a product of a couple of these mixed marriages um, from a Polish-Jewish, just gets confusing for people, Polish-Polish, Polish-Catholic-Polish, which is actually partly Hungarian, partly German, but the, there's the Catholic side and Polish-Catholic side and the, and, the, and the Jewish side. And those are different languages, different religions. And so that, in my case, only happened. It only happened after World War II. And it did happen occasionally before. Um, it was hard the bigger the religious difference, the harder it was to cross that boundary without without converting. Uh, but people generally say within their groups, there were there were exceptions. The further kind of east you went, um, Poles 
would easily intermarry with certain groups. Certain groups would intermarry easily, depending on, on denomination, depending on place, uh, and then others wouldn't. Um, there's this wonderful Polish essayist who grew up in there are these kind of Polish colonies out in the middle of Ukraine. It's now Ukraine. Uh, in, the, in the middle of the, the Dniester River, it settled there hundreds of years ago. And he talks about how things were around 1900 and how, how, how just incredibly complicated it could be. There are lots of things people could intermarry, but some could. And sometimes their kids would then take on a third identity. So you could have Poles and Ukrainians marry, and the kids would become Russian. Or Russians and Germans intermarry, and the kids would become Ukrainian. You would have like a three-way. Once you're, in, once you're splitting, people then can also choose how they align themselves. So it becomes this kind of complicated chess game of identity. Uh, but there are some hard lines that are very hard to cross. The, the Muslim, Christian, Jewish, those big, you know, actual religious boundaries rarely crossed. And, and in the past, it was almost impossible without, um, without incurring the wrath of those authorities. We've touched on this already, but you said that in the West, rulers worked hard to homogenize their states, so political allegiance was closely tied to ethnicity and language. Um, but in Eastern Europe, these empires tended to accentuate difference rather than suppress it. Some of the differences that, we, that we've just been discussing, why was that? Was it because they didn't care about ethnicity and language, these empires that ruled these distant places? They saw just unity as a strength because unity has the, as the, was the threat essentially with, with empire, that's the difference between empire and, and, and the nation state a lot of ways. Nation state, you're trying to, to build a more homogenous body of people that then you can deploy as an army and that everyone's working together. And with an empire, you're managing difference. And the, the, in the past, the easiest way to manage difference is to let everyone have their own privilege and prohibition. You don't want people coming all together against you as, as the emperor or as the czar. Or as a sultan, you want people to stay within their, their kind of parishes of control. So, so Jews would have often areas of self-rule. They'd have laws that they could prefer themselves. But they also couldn't do various things. There were various professions that were, that were forbidden to them. They usually couldn't own couldn't own land or couldn't farm land, except in specific circumstances. And so they were kind of forced to be an urban group, forced to be a kind of craft urban specialist merchant group. Oftentimes you had to be a certain religion to own land and a certain religion to farm land. And that allowed empires to, to keep, keep the allegiance of the landowners. You, that was really important. You would have the economic resources of the economic, of the kind of merchant classes, and you wanted to keep the, the peasants tied to their land working their land as much as possible instead of forming some kind of national movement. So they almost, um, nationalism was a threat. National cohesion was, was a constant headache for, for most of these em empires. And really talking about Ottoman Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, Russian Empire. Uh, but keeping people split by class, religion, and faith was how you kept them from kind of ganging up against you. So you've described the region as a constellation of peripheries ruled from distant capitals to whom uh, they were only at best a marginal concern. So how these divisions work to help the empire 
uh, remained stable. But how closely did the people in these frontier regions identify with the empire that they were part of? Did they see themselves as bearing allegiance to the Ottomans or the Austro-Hungarians? Usually not very much. Usually, and in in a kind of limited, conditional way, although each empire was different and their and their trajectories are different across times. That's um, I don't want to overgeneralize. In each case, the, the kind of question for the empire is can they recruit enough people? Usually a minimum number of people, number minimum of elites that they can give certain rights to in exchange for just keeping things quiet. In each case they could, to a degree. In the Ottoman Empire, that starts to fail first. Uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, and those local elites, the kind of the imperial power starts to really crumble. The, the power of the army, the power of the Janissaries, and you have a series of rebellions that starts to detaching the Christian parts of the empire. Uh, in Austro-Hungary, you have much deeper allegiance, much wider allegiance, especially among kind of that elite stratus of, of landowners and this kind of unique Austro-Hungarian institution of the, of the officer court that was kind of beyond language, beyond any like local allegiance and served only the emperor. And then Jews who, who prospered, especially in Hungary and Austria, who um, did quite well and were barely well treated, at least at the kind of highest uh, legal level by the 19th century and really won their allegiance. The peasantry was much less interested in the empire. And Russia had probably the worst time very little people hated serving that army. The Polish kind of elite groups constantly rebelling. Uh, Ukraine kind of half in, half out. And then the in the Baltics, you had a group of a very kind of narrow group of extremely wealthy German landowners who were very kind of useful service class for the Russians. And then a and then a Estonian, Latvian, Lithuanian peasantry that was completely disaffected and just used as servant labor with no rights. And so by, by depriving them of rights and giving the, the landowners huge control over those peasants, the landowners are very happy because they could make profit and really keep people tied to their land. Uh, and the peasantry was, wasn't. And so you get these internal conflicts, you know, in Baltic history where really like Latvian history has this, this incredible internal conflicts, Estonia too, between landowner and peasant and between nation and Russia and empire that gets conflicted together, that kind of bound up together. So the German landowners in the Baltics, were they a result of the Teutonic Knights controlled that, that territory? Yeah, originally. Originally that settlement that the, the Teutonic Knights came in in the, in the early Middle Ages to, to really Christianize a, a p- pagan zone, a pagan long after the rest of uh, Europe and they maintained that control up to up to the Russian Revolution. Really, uh, and some of those families are still still exist exist. Those castles are very much around. Uh, and then there was this little bit of Swedish zone too in in Estonia, and a Swedish minority just found out about recently. But usually, yeah, it's the it's the Teutonic Knights, and then what that turned into East Prussia, and then the same groups there. You've organized your um, 
book around several core themes, faiths, empires, peoples, and nations, and the experience of Stalinism. I thought that was a really great way to tackle this uh, very confusing and fractured history where, or a fractured region where a sort of a linear history would be a just a confusing mess of conflicts that quickly throws the reader without a flowchart into some kind of disarray. So this this is a really great way of capturing the spirit of place, I think, and and getting a sense of the things that shaped this region and that, that continue to shape it. I wanted to ask you um, a couple questions about faith. You say that the overlapping of multiple religions made it hard to enforce the dogma of any individual faith. And so Eastern Europe became kind of a haven for religious misfits and heretics. That's not always easy to, to see when you're there. But there was that, that same fragmentation, political fragmentation, social fragmentation, led to religious fragmentation. That, um, you know, in Western Europe, there's this like, nation building, you also have something called confessionalization, that you, you enforce, and England's a great example of that, you enforce a certain national church over a nation, over a country, so that France is Catholic and has very few non Catholics. England becomes Anglican and doesn't go totally easy, but they should try to build that, build that nature. So the Swedish Lutherans, you know, find a lot of religious misfits in Sweden. And uh, Eastern Europe, that patchwork means groups of heretics, groups of misfits, they find safe haven there. And there's also less kind of, there's not, like Poland never has an inquisition. So there's not, a, there's not as much enforcement of dogma and people create uh, kind of religious splinter groups and sometimes it's it's hard to even know what the what the exact truth is there's a group called the bogomils who i find completely fascinating the kind of the balkan version probably balkan predators sort of the cathars of southern france the oh interesting the, the, yeah. those yeah those those dualists down in down in uh, provence and, and around carcassonne those forces that fought against france seems like they got that idea from somewhere, but probably ultimately from the East and via the Balkans. And so there's this Bogomil, not Christian-like sect, but almost not really Christian, who believe in that the material world is this is this illusion, this lie created by Satan, and the real world, so it's Manichaean idea, the real good place belongs to the spirit. So the idea of the incarnation they don't like, they, they really split everything material it's kind of gross and bad and sinful and everything immaterial is good. So very different religion. We don't know that much about it in, in, in France, their texts were very carefully distorted in the Balkans, very little survives, but um, for instance, Bosnia, people think that they, they had a real home in Bosnia. The evidence isn't that good, but you have these, all this you go to Bosnia. There's this fascinating stone sculpture. It's called things called Stechax. There's a bunch of them in the National Museum in, in Sarajevo, you can see, but they usually are out in the countryside. Some of these kind of stone tombs, very few of them have, some have inscriptions, usually they just have these incredible carved symbols. And for some people, especially in Bosnia, Bosnians believe this is Bogom. This is our, our unique religious heritage. And this is maybe the reason why Islam was so strong there is because they weren't really, they weren't totally Christian to begin with. They were at odds with the with the Western church. They were at odds with the Eastern church. So when another thing came in, it was easy to switch. Honestly, the truth there is a little, there's very little evidence to go on. There's a lot of suggestive stuff. You can see these, these Stechok tomb, like uh, these fields of these kind of stone overground tombs are really, are really mysterious and fascinating. Uh, we don't have the, the texts to completely back that up. 
we do know there were bogums around. We do know that there was some of that alternative religious belief got into the folklore of the peasantry. It didn't necessarily survive in written form. Some of it did. But it got it influenced um, it's kind of Carpathian Mountain folklore. Has some of that dualist ideas. Has ideas that actually God and the devil were equals. And the devil is kind of responsible for the last step on earth. Very different and seems like there's this other currents. And then on a more practical level, there were just lots of odd sects. Um, Socinians, the Sabbateans, the secular Sabbateans. There were, there were people who, Christians who started believing the Old Testament, Jews who started believing in part, aspects of Islam or pretended to convert to Islam. Is that the group in um, Lithuania? There's a, a group like the Karaites, is it? That still exists today. The Karaites, yeah. They're very small now, but they're a, they're a Jewish splinter group that rejects the Talmud. Uh, kind of rejects everything we associate with Judaism. They're like the the stuff that's good is the Torah. Everything else, don't like it. And they they found a haven in the Crimea, and then they spread out from there to to Ukraine, and then up to Lithuania. So part of the Kingdom of Lithuania. And through the 30s, they they were a thriving a thriving group. There are very small numbers of them left. Most of them, the ones who survived World War II, went to Israel. So there are a couple left. But really, it's their it's their temples, which aren't synagogues. They're knesses that are left, and there's a, there's a museum. And so you have Christian heretics, Muslim heretics, and even Jewish heretics, and they all kind of inter interrelate and interact. And that's something you can see in in Lithuania and Trokai. Yes, um, I went there once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so right as you kind of go up to the castle, it's a great Teutonic knight castle, red brick. In this lake, as you go, you kind of walk down the, the Karaite street, and there's a there's a Karaite temple and a Karaite museum. Uh, it's a very cool place to visit. Mm. Um, easy kind of day trip from Vilnius. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So the, these some of these groups survive to this day, and then there there were some even stranger ones that you talked about. You wrote that uh, Livonia was once famous for its werewolves, and that a person could be both a werewolf and a good Christian, which surprised me. That's a fascinating kind of case study. Um, yeah. How exactly did that work? <laughs> the, the good Christian werewolf. Yeah. So they, they, this comes from a, a court case, 17th century court case that, and these court cases where there was something like an inquisition or there was a, a local religious law. When some, someone transgressed that law, the court case, we get a window into beliefs that otherwise weren't written down. That circulated as, as orally, certainly on the peasantry. I think in 1692, um, they dragged a werewolf in front of the court. It was just an old Latvian man, we'd call Livonian, and they interrogate him. And it's like, well, what do you mean you're a werewolf? You don't look like a werewolf. He's like, well, I'm only a werewolf when I'm in a, in a trance. And he explains that there's this whole, whole thing where people go into trances, although they wouldn't use the word trance, and kind of dreams. And, and the Local werewolves have to fight the witches from outside the town. And that this, this kind of sh really shamanic practice of guarding the crops, of fighting the, the evil interlopers, or usually witches or dragons, depending where you are, and the local werewolves have to, have to fight them. Uh, and they have this complicated back and forth. These, these learned German professors are like, what are you talking about? 
this is definitely not, we don't know how bad this is. This is something not right. Or they, they kind of like, should we burn him? He's too old. We don't need to burn him. We definitely need to put him in prison for some, for a while. This doesn't seem right. Um, and you get, you just, that's the kind of, you're peeling, peeling, you, you're going under the bark. You're kind of seeing all of the stuff that isn't being written down, that's being talked about. Because usually someone reports something, there's, there's a brawl, there's a, someone's wrong. And then you get a window, you get a similar thing in Hungary, the, the, the Taltosh, these other, these women, um, shamanic figures who also have a responsibility to fight against the spiritual the invisible threats to the community and that they do that they do this in trance they do this in dreams they do this so you have this whole other system of belief coexisting with you know your average catholic lutheran and stuff um yeah i think they i think they, they gave the the werewolf a short jail sentence and they kind of let him, let him off otherwise they're like just stop this he's like no no no. but i'm a good i'm a good werewolf i'm protecting it's like no just just drop it completely it's amazing how much, how long some of this stuff holds out there. You referred to the frontier region of Eastern Europe as as a place where the Enlightenment first encountered the world of traditional Balkan belief, and you talked about uh, the great vampire plague that afflicted the Austrian military frontier from the 1720s and the 1730s. It was quite quite a recent vampire plague. I mean, what was that about? Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of the moment that uh, non-Balkan, non-Eastern European people find out about this this whole complex of, of beliefs, vampires, um, probably comes from the Slavic word, upior. The Slavic, uh, the Austrian military frontier was, was one of these kind of special, special regions in, in Eastern Europe, which there are actually a lot, but it kind of ran through what's now Croatia, southern Croatia, and then, and then into what's now Serbia. And it was a kind of special zone. It's where the the southern frontier of the Habsburgs touches the Ottomans. And because that was such a contested area, there's so much raiding and, and frontier violence, they gave it its own jurisdiction. They settled a bunch of real hard-fighting Croats and Serbs, gave them authority, gave, gave the, became this kind of military special zone um, that kind of administered itself. It's like all the men here farm and they all have to be soldiers. And as long as they're farmers and soldiers, we can keep it alone. And then in the 18th century, they start it's the enlightenment and you have to kind of get things on a more rational, organized footing. So they start turning it into from this wild frontier zone, they're going to make it into a regular part of Austria. And so they send doctors, they send the lawyers, they send the officials, and they start to kind of discover their own country. And some of the things they discover is that people there uh, a lot of whom are serbian or, or refugees or immigrants from from deeper in the ottoman empire still there whenever there's a plague there's a plague often whenever there's unexplained illness whenever there's sudden you know house fire they go around and they're like well who did this someone who died go to the cemetery unearth the corpses look for one that seems too alive too undecayed too too intact and and they stab it through the heart with a uh, hawthorn's stake usually, and this just seems horrible to the, these Dutch doctors or these guys from you know Starland who are down there. Like, what what is this? What are we talking about? And that's where you start. Like, you know, they write it up, send a letter to their to their local academy, write about it, 
And that's where you get the first kind of European discovery, West European discovery of a system, again, a system of belief that was very old, very widespread, but not part of the literate world, not part of the learned world. And it takes, it takes, sometimes it's like in Latvia, someone steps out of line and then the local German speaking educated people find out something about these werewolf beliefs. In, in Croatia, it's when you're trying to regularize administration. You discover this is happening all over. And that's where those uh, folk beliefs kind of switch, you know, cross the blood ba brain barrier. They jump from a kind of folk life that's hard to track, hard to know about, into the world of writing. Then it gets reproduced and reproduced and reproduced and eventually turns into a totally unrecognizable, frankly, kind of corny Dracula of, of that we're familiar with through like 150 years of reprocessing. And you've also written about the rich Jewish history of the region. You say about 80% of the Jews left alive today can trace their ancestry back to roots in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. First, uh, first of all, what's for the people who don't, aren't familiar with this region, what's the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth? The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was, was a huge and kind of weak state that dominated a lot of like the northern part of Eastern Europe for a long time. Weak is a little strong, but bigger than a nation smaller or, or less organized than an empire. Um, Poland and Lithuania unified in the 14th century, a little like England and Scotland, where the Lithuanian pagan ruler married the Polish Christian princess. And he's like, I'll, in exchange for unifying, I'll become Christian, my country will become Christian, and we'll, we'll run it together as a also a little bit like England and Scotland pre-pre-union. That's like two, you have separate, perfect. But that kind of condiment is like, you've got your Lithuanian rules, you've got our Polish rules, but we're gonna, we're gonna merge families and run together. And over time, that union becomes closer. And Lithuania is much bigger than the Lithuania we think of. Lithuania, uh, center in Vilnius, but most, most of Belarus, it was half of Ukraine, at least sometimes more. Um, parts of Latvia. It was a very big, very poorly organized and, and sparsely settled country, but very big. So this combined Poland-Lithuania was quite a huge chunk of Eastern Europe. It was, it was especially the kind of the kind of Western, what then becomes the Western part of the Russian Empire, because the Russian Empire kind of devours it at the end of the 18th century. And a lot of people will know or will have heard of the term the Pale of Settlement. People usually don't know what that means, but but a lot of American Jews, most most a lot of Jews in the UK too, come from the Pale of Settlement, and that is Pale actually means kind of like border or or garden. So what what happened was when Russia got this huge chunk of Poland Lithuania in the 18th century, and that's about half, about the western half of Ukraine, most of Belarus, Lithuania, a little bit of Latvia, parts of Poland. They they acquired it. By dismembering Poland and Lithuania, and they're like, this is full of Jews. There's so many Jews here. Some areas were 20% Jewish. Most of the towns in that area were, were predominantly Jewish, 40, 50, 60, 80% Jewish. My my grandfather was from a little, little town that was around 60, 70% Jewish. And it was very typical that the urban, that the urban population is very Jewish, dominantly Jewish. And they're like, we we cannot deal with this. Let's just we'll just pass a simple law. The Jews who are where they are stay where they are. 
There's this we're, we're, we're on a line of the map that's the pale. It's the old border of Poland, Lithuania, the old eastern border. And just stay where you are. You are not allowed to come to Moscow. You are not, you're not allowed to come to, to St. Petersburg unless you're very wealthy. And you can get around any law if you're very wealthy. Just stay where you are. So that pale settlement becomes that that's the region where, where most of the Eastern European Jews live and where most of them then leave. Um, huge, huge percentage of the Jews in kind of the Anglo-American world trace their, their origins back to that Western part of the Russian Empire that traces its origin back to Poland, Lithuania, especially that Lithuanian part of Poland, Lithuania, which does not mean the little Lithuania that we think of now as you know, the little country of Lithuania around Vilnius. This is probably a really obvious question, but what's the difference between um, Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews? And how do they influence one another to make Eastern Europe one of the great kind of arenas of religious innovation and creativity? I think that's actually not at all obvious. Um, but most of the Jews we think about, or I was just talking about, are Ashkenazi Jews. And Ashkenaz is a word that kind of means Rhineland. Ultimately, they're, they're Jews who, who come from a German-speaking context. Come from in the in like a thousand years ago, eight hundred years ago, nine hundred years ago. So they're Yiddish. Yiddish is a kind of deformed, Hebraicized, Slavicized German. It's it's German. The core vocabulary is German. Um, and Ashkenazi Jews—that's the language of the Ashkenazi Jews traditionally. And most of the Jews in Poland, Lithuania, are Ashkenazi. Most of the Jews in the areas around Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Romania, Northern Romania, Hungary, ultimately have that same origin. Sephardic Jews, it's a bigger world of Middle Eastern Jews and Spanish Jews, the Jews of the, who in the Middle Ages were in the under, countries under Islamic rule, uh, who thrived under Islamic rule. And in, although there are Sephardic Jews in places like Iran, Iraq, in Eastern Europe, they're almost always somehow tied back to, to Spain. And their language, the first language is Ladino, just like the, the Spanish Yiddish. It's it's also kind of archaic, also kind of different than Spanish Spanish, but it's the core vocabulary is Spanish. And the Jews of the Ottoman Empire, after they're kicked, after the Jews are kicked out of Spain, they're invited into the Ottoman Empire and they settle very heavily in Istanbul, Thessaloniki, and then kind of north from there, Macedonia, Bulgaria, Serbia, Bosnia, and then there's kind of like Romania's kind of split. You kind of have a frontier between those two. And so yeah, those, those are the two major kind of world areas of Jewry. And in Eastern Europe, they touch. They, they There's a little frontier running through the Sephardic and Ashkenazi zones, kind of runs through. Sarajevo's kind of right on the line. Bucharest is right on the line, kind of runs through that line. And where you have a frontier, you have, you have difference and people going from one to the other. And that creates ferment, that creates um, innovation. And in in Eastern European Jewish history, it creates some real kind of scandalous events. There, there's someone who proclaims himself the Messiah uh, in a very troublesome, troubling part of the 17th century, and people really get excited by it. They're like, the Messiah has arrived. He's a guy, and he lives in Turkey, and we're extremely excited about this. And then he converts to Islam. He has a choice of uh, being executed by by crossbow or uh, converted or just by arrow and converting says it converts to islam and they're like so a lot of people are like well that's a disappointment forget that and some people are like no 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 
He pretended to convert. He pretended to convert. He's still the Messiah. We still have this thing. And so that that's kind of, again, heretical, separate kind of Judaism persists. This is pretty much of the Slaniki. And it excites people. It excites people that there's a possibility of doing something outside the kind of normal way of, of, of Judaism. There's a book, uh, a recent kind of, not popular, but, but very visible book by a Polish novelist called The Books of Jacob. Uh, she won the Nobel Prize a few years ago in 2019, and she wrote this gigantic novel, thousand-page novel in, in Polish. It's in English now. It's about this very strange figure called Jacob Frank, who's a Polish Jew who has who keeps traveling down to that Sephardic zone of the Balkans and starts discovers these messianic crypto Jews, Muslim Jews, the Donme, and is like, well, you know what? I, I love this idea that you could just proclaim yourself the Messiah. And he kind of proclaims himself the Messiah and creates this other syncretic. And then they have various complicated, more happens after that. That's why there's a thousand page novel, but heretical uh, kind of anti-Jewish Judaism. And that comes from that interaction. And it's sadly, that's, you know, that's part of the good advice in Europe is that that world, both sides of that world, have really, have really almost vanished. The, the Ladino, the Sephardic Jewish world is really fascinating. It's present in the Balkans, but those people, there's so few left. So you can go see, you can see the wonderful illuminated Haggadah in Sarajevo. You can see synagogues and places in, in the Balkans. You see that Sephardic um, legacy, but it's more, there isn't much of it living. There's a little bit of it, but there's very little of it left, even less than the Ashkenazi legacy in Eastern Europe, which is a little, has more people, is a little more uh, of a going thing. Were these um, primarily ethnic differences based on where they ended up in the world, or did they have differences in beliefs as well, the Ashkenazi and the Sephardic? Were there major religious differences? No, there actually, there, there are a few major religious differences. Like the Karaites are this other group, this Jewish splinter group that, that comes originally from the Middle East. That's a really, that's like, almost like Jewish Protestants. They're like Bible only, Torah only. We don't like all this other stuff that you've added over the years, all this legal commentary, the Talmud, none of that. Just give us the Bible. So they're almost like, and actually Protestants end up kind of being interested in liking them. The Karaites are a very small group and they're, they're genuinely religiously very different. Sephardic and Ashkenazi, different language, there are lots of different details in the, the details of observance are different. The general beliefs, the general things they study, the, the texts are the same. But socially, there's a divide. Um, I'm trying to think of a parallel. Probably stuff within Anglicanism, like high Anglican versus low Anglican, although not even that, that coded socially. It's just that they come from different places. They've lived apart for a long time. Uh, the beliefs are essentially the same. The way different prayers are done, the way things are done in synagogue, the order of certain things, the the details of prayer, but it really is details. There are, there are things that are a little different. There aren't big doctrinal things. So at the point where the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire start crumbling, nationalism begun, begins to flare up in Eastern Europe. The idea that people should rule themselves and belong to a people or a nation, and it begins to be tied to language. Was that for lack of something else. I mean, you say in many cases, these were long vanished languages that were refurbished or revived or kind of resurrected. 
I think the the thing that's missing is is a uh, is a national political institution that you have you have languages or you have languages that have dwindled hugely in prestige, like Czech becomes by the by the eighteenth nineteenth century really a language of um, of peasants, a language of stable boys, a language of that has that people might learn because. Your nurse is Czech. If you're if you're someone from like a like, and people, your parents might be Czech, but you never go to school to study Czech. You don't you don't do math, you don't do law, you don't do any kind of profession in Czech. And the reason is there isn't, you know, in a world that's dominated by really three empires only, the the political infrastructure beneath the empire is often vanished. Um which would have been some kind of medieval royal institution. Sometimes it's it's there's a shadow of itself. Like Croatia has a Croatia is actually part of Hungary and it has its own diet, it has its own parliament, dominated by rich Hungarians. So it's this kind of kind of there, kind of not. But language is the thing when people start to think about what well, can we have what France has after the revolution, especially a nation of citizens, not a nation under a king. The nation of citizens, what Germany starts to aspire to in the 19th century and starts to build. People have revolutions about a nation of citizens of equal under equal rights of, of male property owners or whatever, but but something democratic. Who would that be? Who is that group? And people choose language, choose language as the defining trait that will choose together. And in Eastern Europe, in, in, in Western Europe, it makes a lot more sense, but there's already, you know, there's already an English parliament that you're broadening out that franchise. In, in France, there's a national assembly that exists and it doesn't exist and comes back, but you have a governmental body that you're down with power and you're broadening who can choose it. In Eastern Europe, you have to create that. You have to create some kind of, you know, you have to find a circle to draw around yourself and then say, here we will sometime in the future when we get the chance to have our parliament and have our capital and have our institutions and have our organizations and our parties and, and language that that's defining trait usually. I mean, there's also class. There's also like communism, uh, socialism, an idea that we can maybe transcend that national idea, but nation, nationalism ends up being usually more. It's interesting too, that you say that national epics were invented and then celebrated as founding myths that like epics satisfied these cravings for um, a single language and a single dream, even if they were fake, because nations still needed heroes. So poets uh, became important to these founding mythologies. The one time maybe when it paid to be a poet. Yeah, well, usually it paid in, it paid in tears. Usually the uh, enormous cults of poets in the 19th century, uh, Eastern Europe, incredible hopes were placed on poetry. Poetry that now that is this era, it's romantic era, Eastern European poetry, not my favorite, but just incredible. And then usually to be a real bard, to be a figure that speaks the nation into being, that is creates artwork. The hope was you create artwork so thrilling, so incredible that it would both kind of lift the culture of the nation up to, to on par with France or Germany and Italy, and also be a rallying cry around it. And the and that figure of the poet. You usually would hope that uh, you die in some heroic 
extravagant way, and then you can create a martyr called around him. And even when they didn't die that way, you kind of fudge it. Like the, the Czech national poet died of a cold. <laughs> Which, not that after, apparently a month after helping someone in a house fire. And so they're like, well, let's, let's, let's work with this. You know, he, di- he died exhausted from his suffering of the, the, the hopes for the nation. He heroically sacrificed himself in this fire, which led a few months later to him dying of pneumonia. Well, you know, you massage that, that cult, create this cult and create a rallying point around figures that um, often ignored during their lifetime and only kind of subsequently were like, this, this fits the bill. This is someone we can, we can create a cult to. We can start building statues. And once we have statues, we can have celebrations. And when we have celebrations, we can have a rally. And we recite the poems that will start that ball rolling. And the thing is, it worked. It did ultimately work. A lot of these cases, that building, starting with an idea, starting with a poem, starting with a cult, and then building out from that, and then building associations to celebrate the poets, celebrate the songs, and then political clubs that built off from the, the choirs and the cults and the breweries, and those political parties, then when there's a crisis, then they do have actual sway. They, you can start with like that little pebble and build that big. It ultimately does, does work in a lot of places kind of surprisingly was this because it was built on uh, built on a real foundation of something i mean they weren't making it up out of thin air there there was something that unified these the czechs or the the hungarians at this time or the poles well that they could base this on or was it really all out of thin air you know it is that idea of if you will it it is no dream that's a you know zionism comes out of this the same matrix of, of late 19th century uh austro-hungary Vienna, uh, if you will, it is no dream. There, people did speak these languages, uh, especially people who had never had political influence or power. People in the countryside, people of working people, farming people, they did speak that language. They'd never had any particular say either in the empires or in the, in the different kinds of feudal, aristocratic, monarchical uh, countries before. But when the whole world shifts, when the basis of power shifts everywhere, from the emperor is the emperor, to people should have a say, people should vote on who's in power, people should have representatives that represent them in power, then you start searching for the uh, greatest common denominator, or least common denominator. And language fits that bill. I mean, that's the big struggle in, in 20th century late 19th century, 20th century Eastern Europe is what is that that unifying feature? Is it language or is it class? And communist, socialist, people on that side, fascist in a way too, but really that, that left says it's class. The thing it's above nations, beyond people. It's the, the interests of the farmer, the interests of the worker. And that does have resonance. That does have people subscribing to it. But the bigger, the more successful version is language. Language unites at least these people because at least the speak, the, the, the political speech has to be in that language. And then that language defines who you are. If you can understand that newspaper, that, that oration, that language, that's something to work 
And you have to persuade people that like, you have to like persuade people that the Belarusians, not clear what that was before about 1890, 1900, very few people even say, know what a Belarusian was. It was kind of a regional, you know, there's, there's a red Russia and a Russia and a white Russia that had to be kind of kindled. And some places it's, some places it's more real than others. Um, Sometimes there's more in reality means how much material is there to work with historically on the ground in memory. In some places, some of that has to be created. Some of that happens in, in you know, in Scotland. A lot of Scottish identity has to also be Welsh. Welsh, that, that national revival, the UK has, has some of that too, where the 19th century, you have to create tradition, invent tradition, find symbols. Pull, resurrect symbols and create uh, celebrations to bring those symbols to the board. And then you, you go from culture to politics instead of politics to culture. So the Second World War brought about an end to that world, this, this world of kind of temporarily at least, these rising nation states. And Eastern Europe was caught between the Nazis and, and Stalin's army. The one part that really stuck in my head from that portion of your book is how people in the East experienced the Holocaust, how different it was from the West. Like you, you say that the conventional image of the Holocaust has become inextricably bound with that of the concentration camps and above all Auschwitz, that this can have a, the effect of making the murder of Europe's Jews seem like a rather impersonal or mechanized process. And in sometimes like a question of logistics in Eastern Europe, the Holocaust is much more intimate. It, it was conducted up close, often face to face in the presence of witnesses and scores of neighbors. That's a, that's a complicated story. And in my chapter on it, I do kind of, I try to do a survey of Eastern Europe, which is very different in how the Holocaust plays out depending on location, especially depending on whether there was a local kind of puppet government, there was a, like a local institution that the Nazis relied on to, to keep order on their behalf, or whether it was just direct Nazi rule. And then, um, then there's also a kind of chronology to that where things intensify. Uh, it doesn't just start in 39, really. There's kind of the World War, War World War II really has two phases in Eastern Europe in Eastern Europe. World War II from the invasion of Poland through 39 to 41, when when Nazi Germany breaks the Molotov or even Pact and invades the Soviet Union, you have a completely different war really an incredible intensification and those areas that they conquer they rule very differently but it um it unleashes the whirlwind that german occupation it deliberately and sometimes opportunistically deliberately the germans knew that in a lot of places they could rely and they could foment and they could have local people local fascists local just opportunists do the dirty work for them especially after the invasion of the Soviet Union, that, that there is like, you can have local people killing Jews on their behalf. And also just a lot of it is done. This is a kind of Holocaust that happens before the concentration camps uh, or in tandem with them, the, the Holocaust by bullets, which is a phrase by a, by a French historian that, that mil, over a million people, probably a million and a half people shot out in the open, shot off in village, in town squares, village squares, in, in open sight of people 
So it's a much more intimate experience of killing in Eastern Europe. It isn't, although the the biggest concentration camps are there in Auschwitz and Belgium and Treblinka, a lot of the killing is done out in the open, and it really ends the, the that system of camps gets gets introduced because it's just too exhausting for the killers. There's so much killing; it takes so many, so much, such a strain on the the, the kind of German police groups and the the SS groups. Uh, it's so inefficient. They're like, we need we need something better. We need something, and also something we start covering it up. We need to cover it up from Western Europeans, especially. You can like pull people in from from France, from, from Italy, and do it kind of under cover of, you know, behind closed doors, behind behind barbed wire. In the East, it doesn't matter that much. You don't have to conceal it. People know what's happening. People have seen it. People watch it. People, it kind of happens all around them. Um, and against that Polish-Lithuanian world, wider world of just Jewish majority to every town, it's almost majority Jewish or half Jewish or 40% Jewish. It's just Every that that urban world, town world is so Jewish, and it ha- is happening everywhere in broad in, in broad daylight. And the creation of the camps is to just make it more more efficient, make people make kind of SS groups have to expend less effort to do it. So it's a very different um, texture. What happens, and then there's a there's a big regional breakdown in what local groups do what depending on how the, the German administration works. Like in Hungary, the Hungarians have much more autonomy, much more power and influence. And actually they do it, they use it for good. Hungary is one of the safest places for Jews until it isn't. Through most of the war, it's a far right-wing government that's allied with the Nazis. That's not great people. They, they fight against the Soviet Union. It's, under an admiral named, named Horton. This is an example of how complicated things can be by based on time and place. You can do a lot more. But but they're very reluctant. They're kind of far-right authoritarians, but they're not they're not Democrats. They're allied with Nazi Germany, but they're not willing to just sacrifice the Jews. They know Jews are really important to Hungary and just seems barbaric. They're, they're important economically. And then in 1944, the Germans invade their own ally because the, they sense... They, they are correctly sensed that Hungary wants wants to get out of the war. They know that things are going south. So they invade their own ally. And then Hungary becomes the worst place to be Jewish. Everyone is being rounded up, especially as I was sent to Auschwitz all at once. This giant, that's kind of what one of Eichmann's notorious things is that he manages that very complicated logistical thing of just getting all the, the Hungarian Jews out. Um, and, they, and then there's, the, there's another invasion at the very end of that year they they kick out the old authoritarians they bring in actual Hungarian fascists and then you start having just street gangs killing people so the, the it swings from toleration and protection to mass elimination to local killing all in the space of a year you have complete changes in how things work based on the how the German government relates to the local authorities to the dynamics of the war to what's happening uh, with and you could repeat that story. Things change and things are different in the Baltics, in the Balkans, in Poland. You have to kind of decide on the exact moment of the war, the exact place. Um, but you do ultimately you release the whirlwind. People who Ukrainian various nationalist groups in this chaos, all of the old resentments, all the animosities. 
they are given free reign. If you had a if you had a nationalist dream, you can pursue it with impunity. If you have a grudge, you can pursue it with impunity. If you want your neighbor's house, if you want their coat, if you want their food, these are hard years, hard years of starvation and of extreme hunger, extreme cold. You have, you know, the doctrine is clear, there's no law anymore. In fact, the law is so, you know, it's, it's a topsy-turvy world where to kill is to obey the law. And you really have this just cor moral corruption spread from that. So this period is bad enough. And when, when it finally comes to an end, the Soviets shift over and they, they take over the entire region. And you say by 1950, uh, all of Eastern Europe belonged to a single integrated social, political, and economic system. Apart from Yugoslavia, um, all the leaders of these states depended on Stalin for their power and looked to him personally for the template of how to rule. This, this close connection between the leaders of each of these places and Stalin was very interesting and how that sort of set the tone for those early years. I was also surprised too that there were so many embalmed dictators. I didn't realize like besides you know Mao and Lenin and Kim in uh, North Korea, I didn't realize that the uh, these other countries also briefly had a fetish for embalming dictators. Well, if you're if you're a Genuine, you know, kind of son of the party. There, there was a thing that you had to follow, follow that that custom. That Lenin was embalmed. Lenin was on display, and these much more dodgy figures who did not have much popular support were really installed purely by Soviet Union. Some of them were like, "Well, we need the same thing. If we're going to follow this course, we need to follow it all the way." Poland, which is always the kind of the most skeptical communist country the least the it was clear that it was one of the least socially adapted to it the people were the most hostile to soviet rule especially because of the old polish russian animosity even there there was a, there was an idea it was floated and then quickly scuttled but czechoslovakia for 10 years had this incredible embalmed dictator that building is still around a pretty funny story i mean he he died Essentially, right after Stalin, almost like in kind of homage to Stalin, he, he dies. Clement Gottwald. My dad actually went to Clement Gottwald High School in Poland, the Brotherhood of Socialism. Uh, they got rid of the old Polish names for the high schools and went to Gottwald High School. So I always had that name in my mind. Um, this very unprepossessing, very kind of unattractive Czech man. And his brother, his son in law, after he dies, is like, Well, comrades, it's time for the embalming to begin. I'm like, is it? Do we have to? And it's like, well, you're good. You're all good. You're all good Leninists, right? To my father, whose mantle I'm assuming is like, sure. So they bring in the embalming specialists. They do this in Bulgaria too. And they build a kind of temple to this very unpopular, very unattractive, uh, probably syphilitic, lifelong alcoholic who's also dead. And for 10 years, he's he's his mummy is on display, beautifully maintained. It it had a had the best air conditioning system in Czechoslovakia, had the best, um, kind of these incredible reports from the 60s of people managing it, uh, the best cosmetic people, the whole whole outfit running. It was on a kind of a pneumatic lift where every night after the viewing was done for the day, Clement Gopal's body would, would descend and it's going to bond on down into the basement so that the technicians could go and see, like, is there any mold? Godfall can we just scrub up a Q-tip off anything that looks looks off and make sure that the suit looks good. And then in the morning he could like rise up from the bottom and be there. 
uh, and then finally they they stop being kind of later than almost anyone they stop being hardcore Stalinists and like we need to get rid of this and kind of a cover of night they're like let's cremate him just when no one's watching just 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 get him out of there cremate him put him in an urn we'll rename it the Institute for Marxist Land Studies and, and, and the building can't get rid of the building it's kind of too nice of a building in in Sofia in Bulgaria they also they built this great marble shrine they built it very quickly it's this kind of Greek temple to to Dimitrov, who they also mummify and they have the Russian specialists build in. They they also then they they get rid of the body after communism ends and they don't know what to do with that building. So through the nineties they're kind of like, what do we do with this? And a mayor, this kind of kind of like a right wing mayor in Sofia is like, we're getting rid of the mausoleum. The body's been gone ten years. We have to do this. Let's dynamite it. And they built this thing in eight days. It's one of the stakhanovite, like, let's build a temple out of nothing to show the love of the people for the departed dictator. So how, how hard can it be to, to, you know, get rid of a building that was built in like seven days, eight days? Because that's extremely hard. They build it out of, like, excellent Bulgarian marble. They try and blow it up. Doesn't do anything. They try two more times. Doesn't do anything. And then they really, they just pack it with dynamite. They pack it with explosives. Downtown Sofia, I think it's 99. So this is not ancient history. This is, we, could have, we could have seen it. I have, I have postcards of it. I didn't get to Sofia until 10 years after. But they really pack it with explosives. And then the fourth time, rips it to shreds and destroys three block, three block radius. The buildings are, are you know, just covered in shrapnel. It destroys tons of local businesses. They really, they, they managed to get rid of it. And it was a huge fiasco. They should have just... Uh, you know, put a Starbucks in it or made it a library. It's a huge mistake. Some of that stuff, they, they you know, stacanary labor. We laugh, but it was a solidly built mausoleum. So that's interesting. That's kind of a, a symbol of the legacy of communism as well. Right? Like the, to get rid of this stuff, they destroy multiple city blocks. The one legacy that Eastern Europeans share in common that kind of unifies them from the communist period is a gift for seeing comedy amidst tragedy. So tell me about that. This, um, how humor became a barometer for what was really going on inside the, these people's democracies or people's republics, so-called, and how, how that became sort of a defining characteristic of the East. That's interesting. Um, I think that's true. That's true to a point that, you know, and this, this book can get grim at times, but I think Eastern Europe is home to some of the best humor, the best political humor, some of the funniest books. I think Chuck writers are among the, Funniest of all time. And it's interesting, jokes were a good barometer of where people stood in relationship to power. CIA actually collected whole books of jokes. Um, Soviet Union, too. So it's the whole whole block. And it's just some kind of interesting diagnostic. Great jokes about Ceausescu, the, the Romanian dictator. Uh, Ceausescu was a constant figure of fun. This little, this little tiny man with bouffant hair who proclaimed himself a genius. The genius of all geniuses, um, and was on his face was on the cover of every book. When you open it up, the first thing you saw was Ceausescu. Ceausescu was everywhere. There's this incredible, maniacal cult of personality. Very different, by the way, from what's going on in like Poland or Slovakia. That kind of leader cult. Incredible. I I, I have one of the, I don't know if I want to do it, but there, I've got a long joke in the book that I chose. But I chose it from hundreds, endless jokes. But it was also diagnostic because he was. He was a terrible dictator. He was also a great, like, kind of lightning rod for fun. But he was also diagnostic in the other way. Something I found that was really kind of fascinating. 
for all the jokes that you had about Ceausescu. And that was a tough regime and a really tough place to live in, but really hard in the 80s, especially. Enver Hoxha in Albania, who was kind of the, um, the Mao of Albania. Albania split with everybody, split with the Yugoslavs, and split with the Soviets, and split with the, Chinese, the Chinese, and then they split with the Chinese, and then they were just alone. They, were the, they proclaimed this as the last real Marxist Leninist state, and Enver Hoxha ruled it the whole time until he died in 85. And he was so powerful and so feared. And this little, while he was alive, this kind of European North Korea, he kind of, similar to the Song Dynasty, especially the old songs, there were no jokes about Enverhoja. People who go, they're folklorists who go and collect. There were, there were jokes. There were jokes about life. There were jokes about um, poverty and how things, hard things were. But it was too, and people say in interviews, it was unthinkable. Because even to think of a joke like that, you were in such danger of being arrested. There was a ton of you know secret police in Romania, but you could there was there was that that at least space to tell a joke in Albania while he was alive while that regime was in power. You you, you did not tell that joke. You did not think of that joke. So there's this vacuum. You know you've got great great political humor about Brez, Brezhnev is a ton of jokes. Ceausescu is a ton of jokes. The people who are really elevate themselves above the people and they become reviled and hated. Great uh, political humor. And then this kind of void in Albania. I just found kind of chilling, kind of kind of an incredible testament to the invidious power, how how deep it reached into people's consciousness that you you, you couldn't you there's, I think there's an article called The Absence of Jokes about Enverhoja. So it's, it has that X-ray of society kind of yeah, North Korea felt like that. I went there in um what, 20 years ago. During the uh, the previous Kim, yeah, and they would say that just the most preposterous things, like we're we're standing at the at the border with the South, you know, and the Americans are all checking mm-hmm. us out with binoculars, and uh, the guy, the soldier next to me, our escorts who were there for our own safety, of course, to protect us from the other side, um, said something about when the great leader or the dear leader came to to observe this position. You know, he's not going to come there by any mm-hmm. stretch. They're just going to pick him off. But when he was there looking over the border. Um, a fog rose up and uh, protected him, you know, from his enemies, concealed his uh, him from the sight of his enemies, but he oh. could see them, but they couldn't see him. And I said to the guy, do you, are you saying that the great leader generates his own fog? And he just looked at me and said, yes. Like with that look of, you know, don't contradict me or yeah. we'll shoot you. That's incredible. Um, so you, you say that uh, also one of the things that surprised me that the end of the Soviet Union began in Eastern Europe. So this this will probably surprise many people who kind of assume it ended in Berlin in eighty nine when the wall came down. Why why do you say that it ended in Eastern Europe first? Well, I think because it literally did. I think we the Berlin Wall is such a. I mean, I remember that too. It's such a visually satisfying metaphor. It's stuck with us so deep. It's well, the wall came down, the Iron Curtain as well. There have been elections in Poland. Like, Four months before, five months before, that was November 89. And East Germany was one of the holdouts. East Germany, it lasted the longest. Czechoslovakia, a few more weeks. Albania, two more years. It's a different story. But in the rest of Eastern Europe, especially in Poland, Soviet rule was really over. We really kind of, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't that visually friendly media. Uh, memorable way, um, but while Tiananmen was happening in in the summer of that year, June of that year, 
Poland had free elections or close to free elections. It's kind of weird compromise that they had done. Uh, Soviet power was on the retreat. Communist power was on the retreat across the bloc. It had really kind of, and even in, in, in the Baltics and parts of the Soviet Union, 88, 89, it was crumbling. It was, uh, it was a Hungarian historian about, uh, about the revolution in Hungary said that communist power melted like like butter on a hot day. It just kind of dissolved in Hungary. They were already already gone. So that moment in East Germany, we're seeing the end of the end. Not the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end depends on how you how far back you go. You could say it's it's really like the uprising in Hungary in 1856, or you could say it's the Prague Spring in 68. But really, I, I for me, I think it's the solidarity in 8081, that's when it starts becoming unworkable. That's when you have this movement that's so big, 10 million people, a country of 40 million people, that it just becomes kind of full communist power becomes un, unworkable and untenable. And after Gorbachev in 85, it's the East, that kind of wind is pulling even the Soviet Union into liberalization. And so it actually, you know, by, I think November, was it ninth that the, the but by I say November eighty nine, a lot of that process has already happened. Most of the communism is already on the way out. Definitely in Hungary, definitely in in Poland. Poland, it's really it's done. They've had free elections. Solidarity swept the table. Huge kind of outpouring in, in Ukraine and in the Baltics. So we we fixate on the visual metaphor of what happened in Berlin, rather than politically what had already taken place. I really like the way you described this in the book, too. You said that Eastern Europe was acquired by the Soviet Union as a buffer zone, but in the long term, it proved to be a gate. So it didn't shield the USSR from Western influences. It ushered them into the tent. So it's kind of playing the same role, that same frontier role that it played back then of allowing these these varied influences to come in, and, and it actually eroded the, the Soviet control from the bottom or from within. I think that story you told about North, you know, that that kind of that deep penetrating control that that Hoja had in Albania and that that the Kims maintain in North Korea, isolation is the front of that kind of like that kind of heavy, strong totalitarianism that China also has in, a, in another lesser way, but the party maintained control. And in acquiring that huge eastern block, this kind of influence semi-formal empire, kind of a weird backseat driver empire where you rely on all these local rulers who are autonomous but have to defer to you, it only opens a huge weakness for the Soviet Union because you cannot manage that that profusion of influences. You're supposed to enforce a level of control over territories that you do not control. And it and it ultimately I think has a much bigger role in kind of sinking the Soviet Union. Because if they had maintained isolation and the way they, like Stalin, was isolated in the Soviet Union. They were cut off from almost everyone. They had no diplomatic context. They could not get out, in or out. It was hard to get in or out. And then they started killing people who, who could travel. But that's really good for dictators, having that isolation. Having, you can, you can propagate things. You can convince people that, you know, they can, the ruler can create your own fog. You let in outside media. You let in outside, you know, people circulate in places that are much less regulated. Like Poland, Communist Party control had almost no media censorship by the 70s or 80s. You know, you, you could get anything from outside. So, like, Soviets started learning Polish because they love Polish culture. But to, by learning Polish, 
you could read all the censored stuff from America and UK and France. You could you could get that via the block. You could get that that gateway to Western music, Western ideas, Western culture comes via the East and ultimately weakens that hold, that intellectual hold on people. I think that role has been underplayed in how important it was that demise of the Soviet Union. It's interesting too, if you think of it in the context of the the way the empires tried to rule these regions, where they kind of pillarized um, the peoples, the way you, you said before, they keep them divided so they don't they can't unite against them. Whereas the Soviets came in and tried to impose this top-down ideology on absolutely everybody, try to make everything uniform. And in so doing, they lost control of these people. But you've said that despite having deep roots, Eastern European nations are still young compared to their Western peers. So what are the main issues facing this region today? You know, in, in some ways, in big picture, region-wide, the last 20 years have been a time of enormous progress. Right, it's not, they talk about something called the happiness gap. There used to be this very robust finding in, so, in social science that if you measured happiness across across the world, there are a lot of people who study happiness, different ways of measuring it, basically survey people. There's an east-west happiness gap. The, the west was happier than the east, and it closed in 2018, 2019. That, that finding was very robust. It used to be really true that the highest rates of after communism fell in the 90s. That's an era I remember really vividly in Poland. It's incredible. I mean, it was on one hand a moment of liberation, on the other, an enormous social trauma for people. People's livelihoods vanished, their jobs vanished, their meaning vanished, enormous increase in suicide. People shrank. People shrank by about a centimeter, which means that their kids were getting less nutrition. And then that's that's gone away on a kind of aggregate. I'm gonna say that things are even. Um, it's gone away on, on two levels. One is that happiness has kind of risen in the East. The other is that happiness has dropped in the West. It converged from both sides. So that difference, um, probably because of the, the economic crisis in 2008, kind of chipped away. So you kind of you kind of evened out, as Sheldon. But then, what's happened since then is, and since the book the book was written was finished before the invasion of Ukraine, and then I I, I went back and, and changed some of what I wrote. I had to rethink. Of course, there had already been the 2014 war, and that war has been going on for a long time. But now you have a kind of strange situation of Eastern Europe has kind of vanished a lot of it. It's joined the EU. The EU has had incredible economic effects, social effects in Eastern Europe, far more so than the West. It's been in a completely, people live in a much bigger world now. It's not true everywhere, but it's, it's had an incredibly dynamic influence on uh, the Eastern European countries that have joined the EU. And some of that's from direct transfer of money. There's a lot of invest. There's a lot of direct investment. You see it everywhere you go in the EU part of Eastern Europe. And then you have a kind of zone of Eastern Europe that's that very much has not had that progress. That very much has not had that step up. And it's usually because of a of a frozen political conflict. Uh, in 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 minor, it's it's Kosovo, Albania, Serbia. That conflict. That disagreement has created, those are very poor countries, Bosnian, uh, Republika Srpska, Bosnia, just, just one of the toughest places to, to travel around. Beautiful, but really feels like the, the Yugoslav war just, just ended in places. That's kind of, that's, the conflict is not active, but it's kind of stagnant, it's kind of frozen in place. And that means economically, it's also frozen in place. 
And now Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus are all in their different ways under the shadow of a Russian imperialism. Uh, Ukraine trying to escape. Belarus kind of captured Moldova on the precipice, Moldova on the on the knife's edge. But economically, all of them are um, and socially in different ways. They're all caught, caught outside Europe, trapped kind of beyond the kind of zone of development, beyond almost kind of that, that like zone of happiness. And uh, and that's that's probably the biggest challenge going forward. Those frozen conflicts and how much power Russia acquires is able to exert region-wide. That's where we'll leave it, I think. Thanks very much, Jacob, for sharing your insights with us. Um, it's such a fascinating part of the continent, and your book really does a nice job of capturing its complexity. So goodbye, Eastern Europe. I highly recommend it. I hope people pick it up and give it a read. It's, a, it's out May 18th, and it's been so wonderful talking to you. I'd love to hear more about your North Korean adventures in general. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a wonderful time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanvernorth.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated. 